American soccer fans, welcome to episode 79 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Donald Wine here, manager of Stars and Stripes FC, your source for all things U.S. national teams, the players that comprise them, and everything else surrounding the game of soccer in America. I want to jump on this week to review some great nuggets that came out of an article from Stephen Goff of the Washington Post that was posted Wednesday as we record today on Friday, May 6th. It included information on the U.S. men's national team from their upcoming June window and who head coach Greg Berhalter may bring in to a glimpse of what to expect in the September window and even the November window. We will also talk about the rumored U.S. jerseys that will be coming out later on this summer. But for now, let's start by digging into this article again, which you can find on the Washington Post. Stephen Goff, You should definitely be following him on Twitter for all your soccer news if you have not already, but he has a great article uh, this week that details a lot of what we're going to expect in the next couple of weeks and in the coming months for the U.S. men's national team. We begin with the June international window, which will be a double window that will consist of four matches, as you all out there may know. The U.S. MNT will have two friendlies to begin this window against Morocco on June 1st in Cincinnati and then against Uruguay on June 5th in Kansas City. They then begin their defense of the CONCACAF Nations League title with the group stage. They face Grenada on June 10th in Austin and then travel to San Salvador to take on El Salvador on June 14th. According to Stephen Goff's article, Greg Berhalter will be using these games as the last chance for borderline players to make an impression. So he's bringing in some guys that he thinks has earned a look, namely Haji Wright and Cameron Carter-Vickers. Both excelled for their clubs this year. Wright plays for Antalya Spur in Turkey, and CCV played for Celtic. They will have a chance to show that they can help a 23- or 26-man roster at the World Cup. As a reminder, they are thinking about expanding the rosters to 26 players, as they did for the Euros last summer. Also, Berhalter mentioned that he would bring in a young dual national that has yet to appear on the senior national team. Now, while the article does not mention who that player is, I'm just going to go on a personal hunch to say that it's Malik Tillman, the German-American attacking midfielder who will turn 20 on May 28th. Berhalter has scouted him in recent weeks. So again, that's just my hunch. We will, I, I think we'll find out sooner, sooner rather than later who that player is. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, Berhalter is bringing in somebody that is a young dual national that has yet to feature on the national team in June. Again, Berhalter is looking at attacking options. That's one of the question marks we have entering this World Cup. And Malik Tillman, who has made some appearances with the first team at Bayern Munich, could be one that Berhalter is looking to bring into the fold. We also know that some of the big names will likely make it onto the roster like Christian Blissick. A couple of players who were injured, Weston McKinney and Chris Richards, are expected to be healthy enough to be on the team in June, while Gio Reyna and Sergio Dest, two other players that have been injured in recent weeks, are not expected to be ready to go, so do not expect to see them on the June roster. Now that we've talked about who will potentially be included, let's talk about a couple names that we can see left off the June roster when it comes out. The first name is Ricardo Pepe. Berhalter mentioned in this article that Pepe may need a mental break after the year that he's had. Keep in mind that he's probably not had a break on the soccer field since January of 2021. He started FC Dallas. He really rose to to shine for them and on the national team, earned himself a transfer to Augsburg, and he's been there ever since. So as a result, Pepe may not be called into camp, but that doesn't mean 
he's out of contention for a World Cup roster, as that will not be finalized until 12 days before the World Cup. But it will hopefully give Pepe that well-needed rest so that he can come back to Augsburg refreshed and, again, mentally be ready to compete. The other name is John Brooks. When asked if he will make it to camp, Berhalter was very noncommittal, but he did say this, and this is a quote from the article, quote, I would rather look at a guy like Carter Vickers to see what he can do because I know what John can do, end quote. This is honestly <laughs> some more goalposts moving from Berhalter, who mentioned back in March that he didn't call in Brooks because he had some deficiencies and that he wouldn't be able to work on them during the short World Cup qualifying window. Well, this is a two and a half to three week window, and this is the time that he mentioned would be appropriate to work with a player like Brooks in an effort to give them the best possible chance to show that he could work within the system Berhalter has set up and can be an asset to a World Cup roster. It doesn't look like Brooks will get that chance, even as Berhalter continues to say that the door hasn't closed on anyone for the precious spots on the plane to Qatar for the World Cup. Now, I want to shift to the fall in the September window. It was already known that the U.S. men's national team would be playing their matches during the September window in Europe, but it has been reported by Stephen Goff that the team is focusing on venues in Germany and Spain. However, Germany and Spain would not be the teams that the U.S. plays because UEFA will be in the middle of Nations League play during that window. So the teams are likely to come from the Asian Confederation. The window runs September 19th through the 27th, which, if you are keeping track, is the first full week of Oktoberfest in Munich. I'm just saying, y'all, just sign me up. (laughs) That got me to talking with a couple of friends about where these matches could be. Shout out to my friends Josh Gansmiller and Marcel Hilly. And it got me to doing a little research about what venues could be possible destinations for the U.S. men's national team in September. Let's begin with Germany, because I have Oktoberfest on the brain. The idea is this. Because it would be a neutral site venue, it would not likely be a huge one because the U.S. will not expect to fill it. Think of the games that we had in Austria during the height of the pandemic that were closed door. That's a very small stadium. I don't expect there to be that small, but I think they're looking at a smaller venue that they know can be filled with some fans. There is one exception to this, at least in Germany, and that is Kaiserslautern. The town has a huge American military base outside of town, and it would be a great place to play in front of a pretty big crowd of Americans. Think back to the 2006 World Cup where we played Italy in Kaiserslautern. Everyone considers that probably one of the best American crowds in the history of U.S. soccer. The Fritz Walter Stadion, home of 1FC Kaiserslautern, holds close to 50,000 fans. And you would think that at least half of that could be filled if the game was to be played there. Other venues in Germany that could be considered, and again, this is not an exclusive list. This is something that I'm just thinking about when coming to research. Bay Arena, home of Bayer Leverkusen, holds about 30,000 fans. Grunwalder Stadion, which is in Munich. It's the home of 1860 Munich. Reminder, Munich is the site of Oktoberfest, and the ability to get hotels for the team and the fans will be very difficult, but it's Munich. It's Oktoberfest. That stadium holds 21,200. Union Berlin has a stadium uh, that is Seats 22,000. Again, that's in Berlin, a big city. And the Carl Benz Stadion in Mannheim holds 26,000. Those are smaller, but still manageable stadiums. Now, I picked places that were either in big cities or in places that were close to big cities and airports. Again, whether they start in Germany and move to Spain or vice versa, that was just some of the things I considered in this list that I'm providing here. So now on to Spain, 
which has some stadiums that are smaller than Germany, but there are some interesting options here. The biggest one probably on the list is Mestalla. Uh, it's one of the magical stadiums in Spain and all of Europe. Is the home of Valencia. It holds about 50,000 people. But again, it would be a magical place to play. The RCDE Stadium, which is home to Espanyol, seats 40,000, but it is in Barcelona. We don't have to play at the camp, no, that it seats 99,000 people. Uh, but a 40,000 seat stadium would be much more manageable, and it would put them in a big city in Barcelona. The Anoeta in San Sebastian, uh, home of Real Sociedad, 40,000 people. La Rosaleda in Malaga, one of my favorite cities in Spain. A simple, just magical jewel on the Mediterranean, seats 30,000 people. Levante in, in Valencia, uh, their stadium holds 26,000. That would be a nice place to play. Villa Real, the Estatico de la Ceramica. Everyone saw in the Champions League how magical that place could be. It is a very small 10 box. 23,500 people can fit in there. And then finally, if you want to be in the biggest city in Spain, you can go to Madrid. And you can go to Vallecas, which is the home of Rayo Vallecano. It seats 14,500 people. And honestly, that would be a perfect place for the United States to play, being that it is in the capital of Madrid. You still have a lot to do. You still have fans that can get there. And then also you can fly anywhere in Europe, especially to Germany for the second match. So now that we have a small list of stadiums that could be potential sites for the U.S. matches, who do we play? I posted an article back in April about some potential fun opponents for the men's national team, and they included some teams from Asia. I mentioned the United Arab Emirates and Oman. I, and I mentioned they would be on the road in the Middle East. That was part of my plan, but they could also play in Spain or Germany. The idea would be to find a team that matches up stylistically and tactically to Iran, which is who we will see in the third match in the group stage of the World Cup. But just about all of Asia is available for friendlies in September. So you could see the men's national team play someone who matches up somewhat. A team like Iraq, the aforementioned UAE or Oman, Saudi Arabia would be an opponent that could be less well-received, but an option. Or they could go with some of the powerhouses in Asia, like Japan, South Korea, China, or Australia. China not necessarily being a powerhouse on the soccer field right now, but at least one that familiar that fans would know. I would bet of that last group, it's two of those teams that we face. And if I were to put money down, I would say the teams would be Japan and Australia simply because each team has a chunk of players who are on European club teams. So the travel wouldn't be as fierce for the bulk of their player pool. They would also present formidable challenges as World Cup teams and would draw interest from American fans looking to travel. So hopefully it won't be long before we find out when and where we're playing in September and who our opponents will be. But Spain and Germany, that sounds all right to me. I will see you there. Later in the fall, before the World Cup, keep in mind that we will be in the middle of MLS Cup playoffs here in the United States. All the other teams in Europe will be in the middle of their domestic seasons, really the beginning of their domestic seasons. Players from MLS teams that fail to qualify for the playoffs will report to a domestic camp called by Greg Berhalter that will include at least one friendly against a national team, and that match will be behind closed doors. This will not mean that the World Cup roster will be mostly MLS players. I need everyone to understand that right now. But this is going to be a way to keep guys in shape for the World Cup. The window for the World Cup does not open up until a week before the first match. And as mentioned before, Burhalter says that his final roster may not come until 12 days 
before the start of the World Cup. So the team will have to come together quickly before they open up on November 21st. And it's going to be a mix of guys from Europe and guys from MLS. The idea here, everyone stay healthy. That is the biggest question mark. Forget all the competition that differs positions and who we could bring. It does not matter if no one is healthy. Everyone, please stay healthy this fall. So there's your fall schedule. We will obviously update everyone whenever we get information about the September window, but we will pause right now for a quick break. On the other side, new leaks of the 2022 U.S. jerseys, and we got to talk about it. Stay tuned. We are back and we get to once again talk about the rumored U.S. jerseys that have shown up again on social media. If you recall, we talked about these jerseys back on episode 67. So head back there for that discussion and then come back and continue the discussion here. But we have seen some more detail and we can talk about them some more to remind folks of what we've seen so far. The home jersey, and again, these are on Twitter. We have an article up on the homepage at starsandstripesfc.com about them. The home jersey will be white with some subtle gray stripes across the chest and navy shorts. Unlike previous Nike soccer jerseys, this one will not only have the swoosh on the right chest, it will also have them on both sleeves like you would see on NFL jerseys, all in what appear to be navy blue on the home jersey. It's unknown what the socks will look like, but chances are, just based on previous precedent, that they'll either be white or navy. The away kit, is a light blue front with royal blue on the shoulders and sleeves, and it makes it look a little similar to the 2016 template. Think about the cop jersey and the home jersey that had the blue on the top with the white. There are royal blue subtle stripes across the torso in the same pattern as the home jersey and royal blue shorts. Once again, the Nike swoosh will appear on the right chest and on each sleeve, this time, however, in white. The U.S. soccer crest is on the left chest on both jerseys. There has been some reports about it being in the middle. We don't see that on this particular detailed rumored jersey that we've seen. And honestly, all the ones that I've seen have put it on the left side of the chest as per normal. The away kit will also have royal blue shorts, and we don't know the colors of the socks yet. But again, I think they're going to be royal blue to keep in line with the rest of the jersey. All in all, despite what I just described, they look very plain. We don't know what the name and numbers will look like. And of course, that adds to how a jersey looks. But on the verge of going to our first World Cup in eight years, it looks like we will show up in plain jerseys. Look, y'all know my feelings on the jersey identity. I think the Waldos should be the home jersey. I've written about it as well, and I've said it many times. Give me the Waldos as the home. The third can be something similar to the 2017 Gold Cup jersey to keep in line with that Waldo theme. And the away one can be something where we take some chances. Our jersey identity should be something everyone can get behind. The red, white, and blue are easy colors that can be used to show the strength of our soccer nation. And for all of you out there, the answer is no. The answer is not to switch from Nike to Adidas because the issue is not the templates. Every company has templates, every single one of them. And if you look at Adidas or Puma, they almost always have template jerseys that they share among all the teams they provide apparel for. The idea is to have bespoke designs that the nation's fans can get behind. Nike does this all the time with Nike 
Nike does this all the time with Nigeria and Croatia. Why can't they do it with the United States? U.S. soccer and Nike need to get together and really speak to what the fans want, a jersey identity that is proudly American. It's not going to help us this year. If, this is, if these reports are true, and again, I've seen, I've seen these jerseys firsthand, and they look very similar to what uh, we've seen out there on social media. So it won't help us this year. But we need to have a focus on jersey identity moving forward because that is going to be important. We want to see in 2026 stadiums full of fans wearing a jersey that shows the world that the Americans are here, that it's our game, that we're hosting the tournament on our home soil, and we're in charge. Simple template jerseys that are plain white or plain light blue just aren't going to do it. We'll leave it there, and that will do it for Episode 79 of the Stars and Stripes FC Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you like, subscribe, rate, review this podcast. We will be eternally grateful. Five-star ratings are especially appreciated. I want to do a mailbag episode next week, so please send your questions to ssfcpodcast at gmail.com. They could be about the men's national team, the women's national team, or anything else about U.S. soccer that you wish to discuss. But I hope to see some of your questions there. Enjoy the rest of your week and weekend, and until next time, take care.